I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. In the early 2000s, after the dot-com bubble burst, it was difficult for entry-level software developers to find a job. Nivia Henry, senior engineering manager at Spotify, talked about her time as a recent graduate during the dot-com bubble. We then talked about her experience in project management, software testing, quality assurance, and bias in machine learning. Nivia also explained concepts around leading teams and how to prepare for the growth of an organization. Nivia Henry, Senior Engineering Manager at Spotify, is joining us today. Nivia, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dana. You studied marketing in college and you've had various roles in technology and project management, software testing, and now engineering manager, particularly in the ad experience team at Spotify. So I want to begin by talking about this and comparing it with your time studying marketing in the early 2000s. In what ways have you seen this space evolve throughout this time, marketing? So I actually studied management information systems and marketing. I ended up getting a double major. And what that means is for management information systems, it's part programming and part more about system design and overview as opposed to deep programming theory. And I decided that at the time, I decided that marketing would be a good supplement because what I intended to do was do a lot of web development and I wanted to have the skills to market myself and be an entrepreneur in the space. But yeah, back to your question, it's been a very interesting evolution. Shortly after I graduated college around 2002, we were deep in the dot-bomb era. And so although I had a few jobs doing front-end websites, I did one for the college where I attended, and I uh, did a couple of smaller websites for small businesses around my area, but the work really started to dry up. And so I had to quickly pivot into project management. And that happened really by happenstance. It's not something I planned, but... The organization where I was working, I just had natural leadership talent. And as the web development work started to dry up, I just noticed that there was a lot of other areas that needed help, just working with the developers to coordinate their work, to talk back to leadership about what reasonable timeframes are for projects. And that started me on that path. And I ended up doing that for quite a few years, just remaining in the technology space. So yeah, it's been an interesting journey, but I would say that although I, I sort of early on abandoned the actual hands-on coding, I ended up just working with technologists and being able to speak their language and being able to empathize and know their work helped me be a good project manager. And I actually heard this weekend where it was somebody talking about the bubble. And from what I'm understanding, what happened is there were still developers working like you described, but they were just not hiring anymore or not hiring in particular fresh out of college developers. Is that correct? That's exactly what happened. <laughs> you know, in college, we got all this hype about the fact that this is a 
thriving market. All of us are going to have multiple offers coming out of college and our classes were very much geared to being able to hit the ground um, running, especially in the MIS space where my degrees are instead of the computing space, which has a lot more background in theory. But when the crash happened, if you were a new graduate, there's no way you were going to get a job because the people who were losing their jobs were coming in and accepting the lowest offer that they can. So it just really, we were just pushed out of any opportunities by the veterans who are already in the field. And in addition to working in project management, were you also working in the marketing space at that time or later on? I did not get to do much with marketing. So the way I used marketing early on was that I would, you know, I created a website myself and I cold call and reached out to my contacts and my networks in order to build a business and a brand for me. And so I think I, early on, I would say I, I used a little bit of marketing and sales approaches. And then also in the company where I was, I was being trained to be a marketer as well as a technologist. So although I had responsibility for managing projects for the tech team, the head of sales at the time took me under his wing, exposed me to some classes, a lot of books by Zig Ziglar. So um, he was grooming me to go into marketing. And the idea was that I was going to, at the very least, start with um, some early sales, but then put together, it might help actually to give context. Uh, I was working in a, what we would now call spam for um, farms, but basically we were doing email marketing at the time. So to me, it was the perfect amalgamation of my, both my degrees. It required a technology bent to understand how to put together an email campaign, how to put together the creatives, but it also required a marketing degree. And so I was being trained on both areas. But then again, as the dot bomb happened and I couldn't get a lot of work, the company where I was now I just decided to really pivot and lean in on the project management side, almost abandoning the marketing side. I see. Okay. The reason I was just asking you about marketing is because you're not working at, at experience, but it sounds like it wasn't really like, oh, you studied technology with marketing and then you worked in marketing for a bit with technology and then now you're at, in ad experience. So I want to talk about ad experience at Spotify later on instead. What I wanted to ask you now is after you were working in project management, you also worked in software testing. What led you to explore this different role? Yeah, so this was about, let's see, three or four careers, three or four jobs after college. I was working at an organization in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania called DDI. And I was, again, working in the technology department. We called it R&D. And I had responsibility over project management, program management responsibility over a few teams who were trying to build one of the first software-oriented architectures, SOA, which is like a precursor almost to microservices architecture. And as I was doing that and the teams kept delivering features, I just noticed that by the time it got to the product owners for to approve them, there's just so much bugs and issues that the product owners couldn't concentrate on the UI and the UX approvals because there was just a lot of systemic things gone wrong. And so as I started to notice that, I started to work with the QA manager on this problem because as a project manager, it's my responsibility to make sure that it was um, the product was delivered. And she took me under her wing and taught me very basic you know, 
tenets of quality assurance, the difference between QA, QC. Like she really gave me a holistic approach. And then I started to do a lot of the pre-manual testing in order to ensure that it met some basic level of quality before it got handed off to product managers and product owners to do more of the UI UX. So a lot of like system testing, but manually in that I'm ensuring that again, the calls that are expected to be made are being made, making sure that systems are talking to each other. So not necessarily from a UI standpoint, which made it very interesting as a manual tester, but very relevant and helped me really learn um, really good quality skills. And from your experience, this basic levels of quality metrics or sort of test, how are those defined? Yeah, good question. So one of the first things I learned and I still apply today is that everything needs to start from a strategy. And when you're building a quality strategy, one of the things that's helpful to understand is for the products that are in that strategy, you want to define the level of quality very explicitly because there's no such thing as 100% bug-free code that doesn't exist, but there are acceptable standards and levels. So when I'm working on a product, and even when I was recently a quality engineering manager, a lot of what I worked on is getting people, first of all, to understand what the table stakes are and what those metrics look like. So be it things like test coverage, be it things like code coverage, be it things like percentage of bugs that are allowed before the system or the feature gets out the door, understanding what the different levels and priorities of bugs are so that we can classify them properly. Those are the types of systems I put in place that served as a framework and that served as core metrics in order for the product to meet what we call quality standards. So it was never really about 100% bug free. It was about minimizing the amount of bugs we found and then putting systems in place to both manually and automatically reduce that load and that bug count. And earlier you talked about going over some manual tests. And I know that there can also be automated tests. Is there a need to do both types of tests, the manual and the automatic test or do the manual ones eventually come automated or do we always need a person to do some sort of manual checks? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So my philosophy is that it's a balance. Nowadays, I see a lot of organizations think that all we have to do is confirm every single test case, test scenario into an automated test and we'll be good. The problem is automated tests can only verify knowns. In other words, you can only test for what you know from an automated perspective. And so those tests are really good for regression testing, but they're not going to be very good at finding new bugs. There's also a cost associated with automated tests because at the end of the day, automated test is code and code needs to be maintained so that it doesn't go, so that it doesn't atrophy. And so what the question you have to ask yourself is what is the right balance? So my belief is that there is a core set of experiences, some people call them happy path, that are good to be automated because it ensures that your system hasn't regression. But you still need some level of manual testing to discover new issues. And it's very important to pepper in manual testing, especially using exploratory testing techniques when you're developing brand new features, because you cannot think of every eventuality that the user might do to this product or feature, and there's no way to capture that in an automated test. So a nice flow is to understand what the happy path scenarios are, have automated tests written for that, and then conduct regular manual testing 
updating, especially on new features, especially during release time. And then as you find new issues in the either the code or the feature or the flow, then you could convert those into automated tests down the line. But you always need that automated exploratory testing in the front end to discover those new issues. In this space, one thing that we're seeing now is a lot of the QA responsibilities to also be applied for people that are in a software engineering role versus before. I think it used to be more common to just, you're a software engineer, a software developer, you're writing the code, writing the features, and then you have a dedicated QA person. In your opinion, what do you think of this, of getting some of those QA components and have those be expected from a software developer? Right. It's a very interesting question because more and more what we're saying is we expect our developers to do everything. We expect them to be mini designers, designing the not only the system, but designing the user interaction to some extent. And we're expecting them to be great full stack developers. And we're expecting them to completely forget what they developed to completely and objectively test the system that they just developed. And I think that's too much of an ask. So what I'm not saying is I'm not saying that developers should not test. Absolutely, they should. That's what unit tests are. And to some extent, that's what integration tests are. And ultimately, that's what automated tests are. But what happens is testing is a very different activity from quality. And when we talk about quality, it's about understanding the entire system and have understanding the desired outcomes of that system. And that mindset does require specialization. So to me, a good pairing of developers and testers and quality folks working together is the ideal because I don't think that the developers have not their fault, but oftentimes they don't have the training background or even the mindset to be able to objectively think of all the ways the user might interact with and potentially break the system. And it's very hard to do if you design the system because you almost have to suspend what you designed and try to break it, which is it's almost paradoxical. So to me, there needs to be a marriage of those two skills with developers doing some level of automation but driven by a quality person or a tester doing some of more of the design and strategy bit. Exactly. I want to switch gears now for a little bit to another area that you're pretty involved in, which is bias in machine learning. And we encounter algorithms everywhere. Can you give some example of algorithms that people interact with on a regular basis that might experience bias in machine learning? Oh, that's a really great question. So there's so many examples. I'm trying to pick one that might be an everyday example that people don't even realize. Well, I would say Google Calendar, <laughs> since I happen to have it open. So Google Calendar uses machine learning in a lot of ways. One example in the way they use it is, at my organization at least, they make recommendations for the best rooms for you to utilize for a meeting. And it uses, you know, previous data on where you've scheduled and booked meeting rooms before to try to predict. And that's an example of a very simple type of machine learning that's highly predictive. And that model is usually developed in what we call supervised learning, because what they do is those types of models use algorithms to do predictions and process optimizations. And in those models, what the machine is trying to do is really 
really just taken a bunch of different factors and come out with a score that sort of predicts an outcome. And in this case, the meeting room, the likelihood of this being the right meeting room is that outcome. What's interesting to me about this example is we're using machine learning in such common ways that even in this example where it might not have a lot of opportunity for bias, but it's just unexpected and people don't necessarily think about the fact that there's an algorithm operating in this space. And when we get to things that are much more risky than just uh, meeting room prediction, that's when the facts are really scary to think about. And can you explain what algorithmic bias means? Yeah, happy to. So algorithmic bias is when a computer system reflects the assumptions that humans who are collecting the data and using the data, it's reflected in the algorithm. So for example, if I am designing a system that gives you a recommendation for an outfit to wear, I'm being hyperbolic here, but like it uses information. And let's say that the outcome is going to be that it gives you an outfit to wear for a job interview. Now, if you're designing this algorithm, some of the obvious things to consider are things like your measurements, your height, your size, the context of the job. But if I am making assumptions, for example, if I am making assumptions about what your gender is, that could be very tricky, right? Because I could be making assumptions that this is the right outfit for this gender and that bias will come through in the algorithm. Or if I'm making assumptions about the type of job this is, if I'm making assumptions that this is a blue collar job and it requires this type of clothing, again, that bias will come through. And it's not that the this is ill intent. A lot of times it's very unconscious. I'm not making these assumptions explicitly. What's happening is I'm either using data that is heavily skewed in some form or fashion, or I'm just unconscious that I'm even making these assumptions. But when they come through and they affect someone, that's when the real harm is done. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes sense. And What are some ways that we can detect that our algorithm has bias? Or are there ways that we can detect? There are a few ways. And again, just like it's so funny that you asked about testing and quality, because I see that as one of the potential ways to mitigate this bias. And the goal is the same. It's never going to be 100% bias proof algorithm or system. But what we can do is sort of reduce the steps. And one of the first ways to do that is making the product well-defined. I mentioned how machine learning is very ubiquitous, and I'm a little concerned about that because people don't realize that machine learning algorithms in general are good for a very specific type of problem. And when they apply it too broadly, then what you're really telling the algorithm is, hey, I'm going to give you almost an infinite number of factors, but I want you to use the same sort of process to come up with the results. And that's just too wide of scope for anything. So narrowing the problem is very important to do. Another step I recommend is whenever possible, try to differentiate whether you need a heuristic versus machine learning. A heuristic is the idea that you need a defined set of rules that can be regularly applied. That doesn't require machine learning. That just requires you to 
to itemize what those rules are. Introducing the complexity and potential risk in machine learning is really over-engineering and unnecessary. And one more that I really think is important here, which is literally representation. In my previous example of the very simple algorithm to recommend an outfit based on a job, me doing it alone is one, me coming up with that algorithm alone is one input. But imagine if I had someone who is from a different culture who can tell me, oh no, this is not appropriate in my culture, or someone of a different gender, or someone from a you know, who's from an, another underrepresented group. Having those people involved in the process alone will help you at least broaden your scope as you develop these algorithms and as you collect the data sources, because you will just have more data points and more people, sort of more people involved to bring in their perspectives. So those are some of the possible solutions. Yeah. And also being more thoughtful about taking a step back and just thinking, okay, who is using our product or who is potentially going to use our product? But that could also add more bias because you could be saying certain groups will be using our product. But I think it can also help if you don't have, you know, all the groups of people in the world represented, but at least adding more helps you consider other opinions. A hundred percent. I'm with you there. I'd rather the risk of having more representation yeah. and having to narrow the scope than the risk of not having enough representation. So I'm a hundred percent with you. Yes, exactly. Let's talk now about Ad Experience, which is the current team you're leading at Spotify. Can you explain what Ad Experience consists of at Spotify? Yes, happy to. So Ad Experience is a very interesting group. So we are a group of about, I would say, 40 or so engineers, as well as we have product managers, user experience researchers, data scientists, and we work with our machine learning engineers as well. And our entire mission is to improve and delight the user experience for on free for Spotify. So Spotify has two main platforms. We have free experience, which is where your listening experience is sponsored by an advertiser. And then we have the subscription experience where you pay a monthly fee for you to receive the music and it's ad free. Now, my belief is both of these experiences are important because let's be real, not everyone can afford to be a subscriber. And the truth of the matter is, I'm really happy to work in an organization that democratizes music by giving listeners an opportunity to hear it for free. Now, we still have to pay for it and fund it somehow, and that's where the advertisers come from. Now, we could like look at it and just say, well, our advertisers then are our customers. But if we look at it that way, then what we're really also saying is that our listeners and their experiences don't matter. And that's certainly not true. A high quality ex listening experience not only helps us get more people to subscribe if they want to, but it also just keeps the base, you know, very, I would say like high quality for the advertiser themselves. And so my teams are responsible. I have engineers and engineering managers who report to me and my teams together are responsible for ensuring that we're delivering a high quality experience, that the ads are relevant, that uh, they minimize interruption and they feel more like an add-on to the service as opposed to an annoyance to the experience. And does this encompass 
building an ad platform or what does the product consist of? Excellent question. So yeah, there's another group that's not part of my teams that build the actual platform for the advertiser. What we do specifically is we render, we serve and render the ads to the listeners. And we also interact with the listeners based on those ads to gain insights. For example, is this the right time? If you're in the middle of studying, we're trying to gain information and make sure that this is not the right time to interrupt you versus where you are in a moment um, where we can interact with you, which requires machine learning. Another example is we try to collect direct feedback. Was this ad relevant for you? And then we try to use that information to build a little bit more of a profile and an understanding of your demographics so that we can serve you a better ad next time. That way we don't end up serving, you know, maybe a college student an ad about retirement or something that doesn't feel relevant to their experience. Exactly, yeah. Or the ones I would get that I would find useful are the ones where it's about an event happening in my region and that kind of stuff. Precisely. Music endemic, event specific, region specific ads are always the best and we try to optimize for that. And as you can imagine, that also requires us using insights and machine learning to understand your preferences to better serve you those ads. And as a leader of a team, what is some useful information or data points that can help you provide guidance for the technical direction of the product? Yes, excellent question. So one of the things that I try to inform you know, my direct reports who happen to be engineering managers themselves, who then have individual contributors, is that ultimately whatever we do needs to be in service of the product and in service of the listeners, which means that really we are a product-led organization. And what we need to make sure though, is we have both the right environment and the right systems to deliver that experience. So my philosophies are much more about how do we make sure we build that right environment, an environment where there's the right amount of guardrails so that you know you don't hurt the product or hurt your the experience, but you have a lot of autonomy to experiment. One example of that is having, this is pretty common, I, I would say, but having very clear definitions of done. To me, that's a perfect guardrail because it states things like, okay, we need to have this minimum amount of unit test coverage and we need to ensure that we at least have one end-to-end -end automated test for regression testing, but it gives you ample freedom to, as long as you meet those expectations, it gives you ample freedom to um, rapidly release and develop without needing some manual checkoff. As long as you've met those definitions of done, you've at least ensured the integrity of the product. Same thing with things like having an on-call system, making sure that there's on-call rotation where the engineers get to participate in how it's formed, and also that it's compensated to make sure that people feel like, again, their times are not being abused, and that by default, they're genuinely happy to participate in the on-call rotation where instead of feeling forced. So those are some examples of systemic things I try to instill. That way the engineers feel like they can make a lot of the day-to-day -day decisions themselves as long as those decisions again are in scope of the product and are guarded against really extreme decisions. In your opinion, if we're in an organization that is starting to experience growth, what are some of the things that you would say would need to happen in order to accommodate for this growth? Oh man, yeah. And I would say we're definitely in that situation at Spotify as well as specifically in my organization. One has to be extremely intentional about growth because every problem you have is worse at scale. <laughs> so I'll give you something really simple. Seating. <laughs> 
you would think that seating is not a big deal, but as we were growing the organization, it was extremely important for us to ensure that teams sit together so that, you know, they can have real-time conversations, they could easily pair and team up without any real constraints. But as we were growing, we were running out of seats really fast, and we ended up having to do things like, okay, managers, you're probably going to have to lose your seat or have hot seats in order to prioritize the need for individual contributors to be able to sit together. We also ended up having to do a controversial thing, which is like some of our data scientists couldn't sit with the rest of the team because the engineering teams themselves were getting to a size where we just couldn't support other groups sitting with the teams. And before, it was also very important to us to have all functionalities sitting together, not just engineers. So this example to me demonstrate the fact that again, if you're not intentional about your growth, even small problems when they scale will trip you up and then they'll start impacting bigger problems. Because if you hear that seating is a small problem and what's the big deal, the bigger impact is the fact that when teams are not sitting together, it's easier to lose information. It's easier to make mistakes because people aren't talking to each other in real time. And unless people then explicitly plan for how they might mitigate that it's going to be left up to the engineers and their focus and priority rightfully so will be on on their code and their products so they might not optimize for the right solution either yes definitely the important thing that you just said is if you're having problems and then you're experiencing scale and growth and then those problems grow it's just going to be much worse indeed Well, Nivia, thank you for coming on the show. It's been great talking to you. Likewise, I love your questions, Adena, and I love the research you've done, and it's been an honor speaking with you.